Welcome. If this is the first time to Church Project or you've been here uh, many times, we just want to extend a, a, a welcome to you. Uh, we've been going through the book of Luke for a long time as a church family. We've been going through it for about two years. And um, we're getting to the point at the end where we're uh, looking at the crucifixion of Jesus. And we've actually decided to put, uh, hit the pause button on that and, and spend a fair amount of time looking at this crucifixion and looking at the seven statements, the seven things that Jesus says while he's hanging on this cross. And uh, I believe we're um, four statements into that, and uh, we're actually going to bounce out of the book of Luke and into the book of Matthew, which is where one of these statements comes from. And so if you have a Bible, um, go ahead and open it up to Matthew. If you don't have a Bible, um, there's Bibles on uh, your right and your, and your left-hand side of the room. Um, it's on page 711. If you want one of those Bibles, feel free to just kind of get up and, and grab one of those. Um, and as you're turning there, I just kind of want to pause. And It's been a hard week for me. Um, I, I knew about a week and a half ago that I was going to teach on this message, um, and I had about... Uh, four or five like chunks of time that I was planning on working on this message, and every single one of those got interrupted this last week. <laughs> um, ten minutes ago, I got a phone call from my work, then there's another problem. Um, life just happens a lot of the time. I don't know where you're at kind of coming into this room. It just seems kind of like the, 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 the pavement of life is just hitting a little harder for me personally this week. I don't know if that's where you're at. It's busy or if it's congested or, or what. And so I just want to kind of just pause and just maybe spend some, so a little bit more time in prayer this morning. Thank you, worship team, for leading me before the throne of God. I needed that, just, just needed that this morning. And so I pray um, that we can just kind of focus and kind of calm our hearts in this place, regardless of what baggage you're bringing into the room, that we can lay it before our king, who's going to take it and who's going to refresh us this morning with what he has to teach us. So let's, uh, let's just kind of pray, just meditate on that for a second and, and open us up in prayer. Lord, I, I feel massively insufficient this morning. I feel unprepared. I feel uh, nervous a little bit. Um, but you are sufficient. Lord, you've proven to be sufficient in so many things in my life and in the uh, life of this church. Lord, I know there's people here that are um, hurting in significant ways, people that are um, busy um, in the mundane of life. And I pray that you are just oh so kind to us this morning. That you would just allow us to just sit in this place and just breathe in and just calm our hearts before you. That you would teach us as a faithful daddy, teaches his children. And I pray that you allow my feeble words and my insufficient words to be anointed by the power of your Holy Spirit to do something, Lord, as your as your word says that it does not go out void, but it accomplishes the thing for which you purpose. Isaiah 51, Lord, I pray this morning that that is um, realized here for our church. Lord, I pray that we um, leave this place refreshed um, 
in remembering the cross of Jesus Christ and the implications that that cross has on our life um, today and tomorrow and on Tuesday and on Wednesday and every day of this week that we would be encouraged and we'd be challenged and that we'd spurred on um, to pursue you um, in the realms of influence that you've given to us, Lord. And so I pray um, that you just bless this time, bless these words, have this text come alive for us this morning. It's in your name we pray. Amen. We're going to be in uh, Matthew uh, chapter 27, and we're going to begin in uh, verse 45, and we're going to read about five texts this morning. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over the land until the ninth hour, And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, Lam Sabathani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, This man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? One commentator said that this might be one of the most profoundly mysterious statements in the entire Bible. It's definitely complicated. It's definitely mysterious. And I've been studying this text for over a week and a half. And I can be honest and tell you that I don't really understand what is being said here. Um, uh, and so I'm trusting in probably more ways than normal that God's going to teach us something uh, that I don't know what he's going to teach us yet. Um, we joked in our eldership meeting about this text, um, about who was going to teach it. And I'm the low man on the totem pole, so I got the, 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 the joy of trying to open up and and teach what God has for us. But I'm, I'm, I know, okay, in, in my past, God has been faithful. When I've opened up God's word and we come with the spirit of humility, God is faithful to teach. Um, he's been faithful in my life to do that. And so I, I believe that wholeheartedly, not based off my sufficiency, but off of his sufficiency this morning. And so, um, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me. It's only 10 words. You count them up. It's complex, and whenever I come to a complex text, I have a tendency to get a little overwhelmed. Um, maybe you have that feeling sometimes. It's kind of like there's a, a, a big sandwich in front of you, and you don't really know where to start to eat it. You know what I'm talking about? You just, you don't really know like at what part of the sandwich to start and how to start jamming that into your mouth and taking little bites at a time, but that's how you have to eat a big sandwich. So that's how we're going to try to address a big text this morning. Um, When I was 14 years old, I remember specifically a youth pastor, my youth pastor at the time, asking me, probably for the first time that I could remember, said, Jason, what do you do when you read texts? What questions do you ask yourself when you read Scripture? What process goes through your mind as you read verses like this or you read other verses in other places in the Bible? How do you process that? How do you think about that? 
And as a 14-year-old, I remember my answer. I was like, uh, what? It's not osmosis. Like you just read it and you get it and you walk away from it. Sometimes that happens, but God also has given us tools to start digging into his truth. And um, I remember uh, this youth pastor instilling into me, giving me um, small, simple little questions that began to build the foundation as a 14-year-old for how I would read scripture even today. And so when I get a little overwhelmed with the text, that's kind of what I revert back to is just a bunch of little simple questions that try to mine out what God is teaching and what God desires to teach from his text. Because that's the desire here. It's not to come open up God's word and to read in what God might be teaching, but to extract, to read out what God might be teaching. And so that's the, that's the hope this morning that we do that. And so in an attempt to understand some of these things and what they're saying, we're going to walk through some simple questions this morning. They're going to have some pretty profound answers, no doubt about it. Um, the first simple question. What does the statement, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What does that literally say? And if you think about that, it's a, it's a question. Okay, Jesus is actually asking a question. It's, it, it, you can see that because there's a question mark at the end of the statement and there's a word why that's in there. It says, why God have you forsaken me? And The reality is, though, that that question is also a statement, right? Embedded within the question is a statement that God has forsaken him, okay? So it's kind of like a rhetorical question that's working on some assumptions. It's saying, Jesus is saying, why have you forsaken me? Okay, meaning you have forsaken me, so why'd you do that? Okay, so at its very basic level, let's take the statement, my God, my God, let's set that aside, we're going to get to that. Let's set aside the, the, the fact that it's a question. We're going to get to that. And let's just look at the fact that it's a statement. God forsook Jesus. Okay. What does that mean? Okay. What does it look like? How's it carried out? What's involved? When did it start? When did it end? Um, maybe even... Uh, simpler questions like, what does the word forsaken even mean in the text? And so uh, another um, thing that was passed on to me on, in typical texts is you take the lowest hanging fruit, okay? When you start looking at uh, a text and you don't understand it, you ask a basic question, what does it literally say? Okay, well, it's saying that God forsook Jesus. And then the question is, okay, so how do you take the lowest hanging fruit from that? Well, the lowest hanging fruit is to look at the word forsaken first. Okay, so that's where my mind started going as I was thinking about this text. What does the word forsaken mean? Okay, in ancient biblical Greek, this word is used to either describe the fact of abandonment, that an individual has been left behind, possibly, deserted, and we're reading out of the ESV and, and uh, independent of uh, which translation I looked at, whether it's N- NIV, NASB, all of the translations that I looked at for this text this morning all used the past tense form of that verb. And some people are starting to nod off. They're like, this is like eighth grade English. I don't want to go there. Man, I wish I would have paid so much more attention in eighth grade English. If I would have known and understood like how it would have served me in reading God's word, I would have paid so much more attention. 
but I didn't. So I've got to go back and like learn all about the grammar and all these things that I thought were a bore. Um, but the importance of this is that this Greek word is translated in the preterite, okay? And that's important in reading out and mining out the truth of this text, okay? And it's not just a past tense verb, okay? It's also a special type of Greek past tense verb, and that's called an aorist verb, okay? We're going to explain why all this matters here in a couple minutes, but we got to build the framework for it, okay? An aorist verb takes a verb that's in the past tense, and it tries to summarize all the events as a whole, okay? So maybe think about the statement this way, my God, my God, why did you forsake me? Communicating that the act of forsaking had already taken place at this moment in time when Jesus is hanging on the cross. Let's look at some of the other questions now. So what does it look like for Jesus to be forsaken? How is it carried out? What is involved? When did it start and when did it end? Because this Greek word, this little Greek word, forsaken, okay, is truly important because it communicates to us as its readers of the text, okay, where to look to find out more about this idea that Jesus was forsaken. Do you see that? Okay. It's saying, hello, hey, wake up. Okay. If you want to understand more about the idea that Jesus was forsaken, okay, you need to look back in the text to understand what that actually means. Don't look ahead, okay, because it's it's not happening ahead. It, It already happened. Okay, you see the importance of that? So as we start thinking about the idea of what does it look like for Jesus to be forsaken, the line in the sand is said, okay, it's already happened, so you got to look backwards and, and try to figure out the meaning of what that looks like. When did it begin? When did it end? What was involved? What's the meaning of it for us today as his church? There's a particular theology in Christian circles that believe that after Jesus died, he actually descended into hell, was punished for a period of time, and then he rose from the grave. And the problem with that line of thinking is that it doesn't square with statements of the text like this. Okay? Why, why is that? Okay? Because the forsaking of Jesus is a past event, not a future one. See the importance of that? The, the, the forsaking of Jesus, the punishment of Jesus on the cross at this point in time when Jesus says, why, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Okay, it's almost like the forsaking has happened. It's been in some ways completed. Therefore, nothing after the fact is going to take place that's punishment or forsakenness. Does that make sense? We're going to tie in why that all matters here in a couple seconds, okay? Think about the reality of Jesus' statement to the thief on the cross. You remember that? We, we talked about this. What does he say to the thief that's hanging on his right? He says, today, you'll be with me in paradise. Okay? What about one of the statements that we're going to look at in John here in the coming weeks? It might be even next week. I'm not exactly sure. Okay. What, what is the three, possibly the most powerful words as Christians that we should hold on to that Jesus says on the cross? It is finished. I mean, that's huge. 
Statements like the fact that Jesus might have gone into the pit of hell don't square with statements like that. Okay? Important. Jesus' separation from God the Father, his abandonment, must have been something that he had just experienced. And that experience must have held some kind of judgment. Now, why do I say that? Okay? If this is an experience that he just had, why do I take that experience and start talking about specific things that he experienced inside that experience? Well, let's look at this. Look at verse 45. Now from the sixth hour, some of your Bibles might insert there, that is noon, like that's the time frame in which this is happening. Okay? It's, it's, it's noon, there was darkness over the land. And if you read through the Old Testament, darkness was used to illustrate the judgment of God on something. Specifically, in Amos chapter 8, this is pretty cool. Think about the crucifixion. Think about all the things that are happening amongst the crucifixion as I talk about Amos chapter 8. Okay? We're told that, the, that God would make the sun go down at noon. He would darken the earth in broad daylight. And he would bring his judgment on the guilty. Sound like the crucifixion? And it's after this darkness that we get the words from Jesus that he cried out with a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Not really sure when it began. A lot of people speculate. A lot of people smarter than me have come to conclusions. I don't know. When did the forsaking of Jesus begin? But we know that the Son of God who up to this point was somewhat poised. I mean, you think about the things that Jesus went up to at this point in time in this crucifixion story, okay? So he's, he's uh, on trial, and people are bringing false witness about who he is. They're just lying, straight up lying about the things that he said and manipulating and twisting the things that he said. I mean, he's spit on, he's beaten, he's whipped, he carries his own cross up to uh, the place of Golgotha, okay? And he's pretty well poised. I mean, you think you remember the interaction between him and Pilate? Okay. What was Pilate's response to, to the response of Jesus? He was shocked that this man would stand there and just take what Jesus was taking without any words. Okay, it says that he was in awe of his silence. That's what it says. But here, he cries out with a loud voice. Some commentators say that this Greek phrase, he cried out with a loud voice, should have been translated with the word shriek. Okay? That Jesus shrieked, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's heavy. So what does that tell us? I take that to mean that when we consider the mockery, when we consider the visual imagery like the Passion of the Christ, which is a sweet movie, okay, when we consider the mockery, when we consider the suffering, when we consider the nails, when we consider carrying the cross, when we consider the fact that he is 
agonizing in pain for every breath as he strung up, hands pinned and feet pinned. All of those things seem to not have anything in comparison to what Jesus just experienced, which made him shriek out in loud voice, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This experience was something Jesus had never, ever known. You read through the New Testament, you read through the Old Testament, you get some really sweet pictures about the unity that God has with the Son. I mean, it's all the way back in Genesis, okay? God says, let us, okay, it's a plural word, let us make man in his own image. Who's he talking to? He's talking to the Godhead. He's talking to the Trinity. He says, let us make man in our own image. Jump ahead to the book of John, chapter one. We all know this verse, okay? The word was with God and the word was God. And as we read on, we understand that this word logos in Greek means Jesus, okay? So what's it saying is that, the, that Jesus was with God and he was God and he was with God before anything else happened, before anything else was, him and Jesus and the Holy Spirit were together in perfect unity, experiencing perfect relationship. John 17, verse 5, Jesus is saying to the Father, he says, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the foundation of the world. That is a deep relationship. And the verses go on and on about the relationship that the son had with the father. And for the first time in all of eternity, think about that, that's a long time. For the first time ever in all eternity, that relationship was broken. It's like one thing when you have a friend of a couple years that says, like, I don't want to have anything to do with you anymore. Be be gone. I'm done with you. It's, it's different. You have a girlfriend or a boyfriend. You know, that relationship is, is a little, maybe a little bit deeper. Or a brother or a sister that says, I don't want to have anything to do with you after uh, 15 years of being your brother or your sister. Or uh, maybe it's a spouse after uh, 50 years that says, I don't want anything to do with you anymore. Because the deeper the relationship, the deeper the context, the deeper the intimacy of that relationship, the more hardship that comes when it's broken, right? And Jesus and God the Father had only known the greatest of love and affection for one another. I mean, before anything else was, before you or I existed, before this world was created, they were in perfect unity, in glory. John 15, 17, verse 5. And now, God the Father has forsaken his Son. And what's more is in its place, God has taken his righteous cup of wrath, and he has poured it on his son. Romans 3.25 says, But God put forth Jesus as the propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Propitiate. 
It's not a word we use in common language, but it paints a really powerful picture. Okay? The word, the idea of propitiate, that's to turn aside. Okay? It's an appeasement for the wrath of God. So when God says in this text that he put forth Jesus as the propitiation, here's the picture you need to see. Okay? You need to visualize that we're standing here, Jesus is standing over us. God is pouring the cup of wrath on him and the cup of wrath is being turned aside. God is, Jesus is absorbing that over us. That's the picture to be seen there for the word propitiate. Hold that forever in your mind. That's a powerful, powerful picture. Where God takes Jesus and he trades with us the seed of wrath for the seed of mercy. It's a sweet picture of the exchange between what God and Jesus are doing when God is forsaking the son. God had Jesus who knew no sin become sin and treated him as a sinner. Second Corinthians chapter five where Ephesians 5 tells us that Jesus was the sacrifice that was given up to God on our behalf. And Isaiah 53 says, and it was the will of God to crush him so that he would do it. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus is in that place because for the first time ever, Not only is his love relationship broken with the Father, but in his place is judgment. It's heavy. So let's go back to simple questions. Why would God do that to his son? It's a simple question. There's a great book out there called The Passion Uh, of Jesus Christ by John Piper. Um, If you haven't read it, I would encourage you to get it. It's like 120 pages. It gives 50 reasons why Jesus came to suffer and die. And it's amazing. It's like, it gives you a page and a half. You can read it in three minutes, you know, every, every day or every other day. And it costs like $3 on Amazon. I'd encourage you all to go pick up that book and marvel at what Jesus and God were doing when God was forsaking Jesus. If uh, the three bucks is not doable, you can go on Google and you can type in The Passion of Jesus Christ by John Piper. It's like the third link down. It's a free PDF. Click it, download it, and you can print it or throw it on your Kindle or something. And just be amazed at the complexity of, the, of, the, of all the facets and 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 this book is just scratching the surface, by the way, of the things that God is doing with Jesus when he is forsaking him for our sake. But I probably should give at least one or two answers for why Jesus forsook, um, God forsook Jesus, not just leave it up to the book. So the reason that God forsook Jesus was because there was a gap that we created with God because of our disobedience to him. And there is a demand that needs to be met because of that disobedience. Okay? 
A lot of people in even American Christian culture today looks at the cross and they say, man, that is a, a very symbolic, loving thing that God and Jesus did for us. Let me tell you straight up, it was not symbolic what was happening on the cross. Okay? Jesus did not just walk to Calvary and it was symbolically Put, poured out the wrath of God and it was, it was nice that he was obedient to the point of death and we just look at what Jesus did and WWJD kind of thing. That is not what is happening here. Okay? There is real demands, real debt that we must pay because we have sinned a holy God. And Jesus is the payment. One person says you don't have enough pennies in your penny bank to pay the debt, but Jesus does. It's not symbolic. It's real. There is Colossians 2 uh, verse 9 says that Jesus canceled the record of debt that stood before us and he nailed it to the cross. There was a real exchange being made. Because we were imperfect, there needed to be perfection in its place. And that's what Jesus accomplished. Do you see that? He granted us freedom. The forgiveness of sins, Matthew 26, 28. So that we might have redemption through his blood, Ephesians 1, verse 7. So that we might be justified in God's eyes, Romans 5, 9. Those are sweet truths because of what God and Jesus were doing on the cross. Because God forsook the Son, we could have those things by faith. It gives me like such sweet new meaning to 1 John 4, 10. You know that verse? In this is love. Not that we love God. So true. But because God loved us, amen. And that love prompted it to do something. Do you know what the rest of the verse says? And he sent his son to be a propitiation. There's that word again. For our sins. 1 John 4.10. You want to see love? You want to see the expression of God's love for us as his church? Consider that he forsook the son so that we could be called children of God and come before our daddy with boldness and be called children of the Most High King. That is sweet. I got thick fast. Bunch of simple questions. What does the text say? Well, the text says that God forsook Jesus. What does that mean? Okay, that the relationship between God and Jesus was broken and its place was judgment. Why? Because we alienated ourselves from God and God in his love decided to do something about it. And he and his son acted in such a way that the holiness of God could be preserved and that we, as imperfect people, could come before the throne of Jesus. That's sweet. So now, 
What points of application can we pull from that text this morning? The first point comes from the fact that this is a question that Jesus poses. Remember, we talked about that initially. It's, a, it's really a question, but underneath that question is a statement. Let's go back to the question and ask, the, and ask a question. Is there anything that we can learn from Jesus in the fact that he posed it as a question? Why, God, have you forsaken me? Sometimes when I'm defining things, it's easier to define it based off what it's not than what it is. Do you ever have that experience? You're like, well, I can, I can tell you what I don't want to major in in college, or I can tell you what I don't want to do as my job, but I can't always tell you what I want to do. Or um, I can tell you what I don't want my kids to do, but sometimes it's difficult to tell them what you want them to do. Okay, well, I find the same um, thing is true. Sometimes it's easier to say what, you, what it's not before you start saying what it is. And so um, Jesus asking a question here, okay, does not mean, pretty important, okay, does not mean that there might be times in our lives when suffering is present, therefore, you can ask God what he's doing. Now, let's stop and pause. Some people have just got a bunch of red flags in their mind, okay? I'm not saying that that's an unbiblical principle, okay? That is a biblical principle. You want to look at it and you want to see it? Look at the, at the book of Psalms, okay? Almost every psalm, not all of them, but almost every psalm is that exact same thing. Okay, you got people like David who are writing psalms and they're saying, I don't understand what's going on here, God. I don't understand what you're doing. I don't quite get it. Where are you? You seem far from me. And then if you keep reading, he starts articulating truths to himself about the character of God to draw his mind and his heart towards the truths of God and not towards his experience, okay? So that, I'm not saying that that's an unbiblical principle, but I am saying that that's not what this text is saying for us to do, okay? So delineate that out, okay? So I don't think it's accurate to look at this text and say we should question God because I don't think Jesus is questioning God. I think The opposite, actually. I think Jesus knew perfectly well what God was doing. So the question remains, so then why did he ask the question? Consider the crucifixion. Think about all the things that you've learned from your Bible studies and Sunday school lessons. And I want to read bits and pieces of Psalm 22 and ask if they seem similar to some of the experiences that Jesus has, okay? Psalms 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? From the words of my groaning, all who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. They say, he trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. For dogs encompass me. A couple of evildoers encircle me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and they gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. Who wrote this psalm? Does anybody know? David. 
It's a good guess. If you don't know, just say David in the Psalms because he wrote a lot of them, right? When did David's hands and feet ever get pierced? When, when was he hung upon a cross, apparently, and have his garments taken from him? The answer is it didn't happen. Okay, so I take that to mean that this is actually a text pointing to the crucifixion of Jesus and Jesus knowing that it's a text about him is quoting it so that we might be encouraged by the fact that he knew what God was doing in this moment in time. Do you see that? He isn't broken to a point where he's lost the mission that him and his father have started out on. That's not the reality of it. People that say that they're wrong. Sorry. He is so sure of it that he is quoting from the beginning of a psalm. Psalms 22. Listen to how Psalms 22 ends. Okay. For the kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship before him shall bow all who go into the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Prosperity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. Get this. They shall come and proclaim God's righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. Jesus had full assurance in this time of need. He vocalized that assurance by quoting from a Psalms in which he understood the ins and the outs and the beginning from the end and all things in between. What's the point that I'm making here for us today? He vocalized that assurance even in the midst of incomprehensible suffering. And how did he vocalize that assurance? He vocalized it through articulating scripture to himself and to people that are amongst it. Through the living and active word of God, what a testament of being grounded in the hope of God by the word of God. It's like we as a church, do we cherish and believe in God's faithfulness to use his word in our lives, church? Do we see the word of God as that powerful, as it would renew our minds and our hearts in the difficulties and in the sorrows of our world that we live in? It's like I know I've got like some significant room to grow in this. Like most of the time, like my lack of cherishing of God's word is rooted in the fact that like I think I have enough to offer without using that. Okay, think about that. You're in house church, you're in small group, people come in through the door and they start talking about difficulties in their life or where they're at and I just pop over to like Dr. Phil moment, right? It's like, oh, well, this is what you need to do or this is how Jason would solve your problems or this is how Jason can fix this or yada, yada, yada. Just ask my wife, okay? There's nothing that I bring to the table that's of any wisdom or any value. And yet, it's so easy for me to go that direction as we're shepherding the people of God, as I'm interacting with the people of God. I'm not giving life-breathing text to them. I'm just giving my two cents about, well, this worked for me once and I heard this from somewhere and 
I want our church so deeply, I, so deeply, I want our church to be humble, biblical scholars who as people come into this place, and as they're hurting in real life situations, that we would breathe life-giving scripture because it's living and it's active and it's the way that God has given us to shepherd and to grow his church, that we would just encourage and that we would wash each other in the word of God. But to do that, you've got to believe that that's where it's coming from. You've got to love it. We've got room to grow in that. I know I do. Got a room to believe what Hebrews 4.12 says, that the word of God is living and it's active. Sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the visions of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. It's a battle of belief, church. That his word is what's going to guide our lives, what is given to us to communicate what God intends for his church to look like, what God intends for his children to look like, how his children should think, how his children should act, what marriage should look like, and on and on and on. And I pray that we continue to be a church that intentionally cherishes that word. Second point, we're almost done. Quick, but really important. If you haven't listened to anything up to this point, I'd ask that you perk up a little bit. It's from the first four words of the statement, my God, my God. We're going to set a back to that. That's a term of submission that Jesus has for the Father. He could have just said, why have you forsaken me, God? He could have said it that way, and that's not how he chose to say it. He's not, that's not how God chose to write the Psalms. Okay? Instead, he said, my God, my God, which is a term of submission. I acknowledge I'm yours, that I've come not to do my will, but to do your will. What an example of perfect, utter, utter perfect obedience. And I remember growing up, that acronym, WWJD, what would Jesus do? And I'm sure that there's some really good intentions behind that. Those intentions probably didn't ever reach my sphere of influence and my friends and the people that were shepherding me as a young man. Um, and so what that WWJD turned into was a focus on what we as Christians should do because what Jesus did. And that's not necessarily wrong. And there was even like uh, bracelets. I think I rocked a bracelet for a little while. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, they had like the little cubes and you could, anyway. Um, I think I rocked one of those for a little while. Um, I don't believe this text is saying WWJD. I think it's saying WHJD. What? has Jesus done? If you believe in Jesus today, if you have accepted him through faith, 
that perfect obedience, obedient to the death of the cross, get this, is the way that Jesus, God the Father, sees you right now. Obedient to the point of death. Don't, so in other words, don't look at this example of Jesus as his obedience and take from that and say, okay, uh, so we need to be obedient. Uh-uh, it's not about what we should do. It's how we're already looked at because of what he did. Do you see that? Consider what Jesus has done. What a sweet encouragement to the reality that I'm a flawed person. I jack it up so often of the time. Every single day of my life, whether it's in my marriage, whether it's in my job, whether it's with, um, uh, uh, as, as, a, as a father, whether it's as a brother, whether it's as a son to my father, I jack it up so much of the time. And this text says, consider that your daddy sees you as perfect as Jesus is articulating that perfection in this text. That is sweet. I want to be a part of a church that is broken and encouraged towards love and good deeds, not because we're acting out of this WWJD mentality, but because we are so Christ-centered on the reality of what he did for us and who we are because of that, that it's an overflow of the reality that God sees me as perfect. And so I want to walk in obedience because my father sees me that way. You see the difference? You see the distinction? One's focusing on what we are doing. One is focused on what God has done. I want to be a church that focuses in everything that we do not chiefly on what we can do for Jesus, but what Jesus has done for us. Amen? Amen. Let's just take a minute, two, and just close your Bibles and just consider those encouragements. Lord, how gracious, how good you are to forsake your son so that we might be seen as obedient sons and daughters of you, Lord. What a sweet truth, Lord. We all come in here with full understanding of our imperfections and our um, insufficiencies, Lord, but you continue to point towards your sufficiency in Jesus. Lord, I pray that we are encouraged to live a life pursuit of love and good deeds, not because... We're earning anything. We're desiring to earn, but because we already have. We're already seen that way because of who you are and what you've done. Lord, I pray that you help our church grow as we love and cherish your word more. Lord, I pray that you help it to be the guider for the way in which we interact with one another the way in which we uh, shepherd one another, the way in which we give advice to one another. Lord, may we breathe in the life-giving scripture into one another. Lord, I pray is that we go, that we would be so encouraged by what you've done. Lord, I don't understand in fullness why you forsook the son, but I am so thankful that you did. Because in it, you purchased 
my belief. You purchased me to be called a son of the most high God, Lord. And I pray for anyone that is in this room that also believes in Jesus, that they would be assured, that they would be grounded, that they would have such significant hope because of what you've done. And how that points to the reality of the things that you will do in our future as your sons and as your daughters. Lord, I pray that you embolden us. Help us stay Christ-centric, gospel-centric in the things that we do. Lord, may we never, ever leave that behind. We love you. We're so thankful for your word, the things in which you have taught us collectively. Lord, I pray that you help us to apply it Share the hope of this love to the people that need it in the world that we live in.